Hello everyone and welcome to the very first uh, Shot Reverse Shot Top 10 episode. Uh, I'm Joe Gastineau and joining me as always is Ed Davis. How are you doing sir? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm not bad. I'm glad you asked. I, didn't, I thought you were going to like not ask me how I was there, and I was going to be mortally offended. Um, but yeah, regular listeners will notice that we normally do a top ten um, list at the end of an episode. Our episodes are themed, and we normally have an accompanying top ten episode. But we've decided, for various reasons, the biggest one is that they drag on forever, don't they, Ed? Yeah, we got some network notes. <laughs> yeah. The executives, they were not happy they weren't we had an episode on was it the childhood episode we did which yeah. was about an hour and 20 minutes long and like 45 minutes of that was us listing um kind of the 10 best kind of child performances which was fun and i'm sure listeners at home will agree informative um but we just thought it would be better suited to kind of uh stand on its own don't you think it yeah obviously it's a format that's you know, pretty easy for us to do just to talk about sort of 10 films and it's easy to come up with sort of yeah. a related theme that either can supplement a full discussion episode or as in this week is just kind of its own thing to go off on its own and uh, yeah I think it's it's partly a pacing thing we just don't want to sort of drag down thematic episodes by talking for like 50 minutes to an hour and then having to kind of talk for even longer uh, around sort of the lists yeah and totally as well, lists are hit bait and we are going to clean up. Oh yeah, so so such hit bait. We're going to Absolutely. Be, we're going to be number one on Google when you look up Shot Reverse Shot. We're number two at the moment. What's What are we, what are we behind? The, the actual concept of Shot Reverse Shot. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> the actual oh, so techniques. Oh, okay. Right, okay. Well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna replace that. Like Franz um, Ferdinand the band being the Franz Ferdinand people think of and not the one whose death was responsible for millions of deaths. So that's our ambition as well, is to overshadow the basic filmmaking technique that gave us our name. Mm, yes. Um, <laughs> the one thing that's going to accompany us uh, with the move, so don't fret everyone, is we are keeping our jingle. Um, and for those of you who hadn't heard it, brace yourselves, because here it comes. Top ten. That just... Uh, that just gets me every time, Ed. It's a haunting. <laughs> it's haunting. Um, would you like to tell the listeners at home what we've chosen for our first top ten list, Ed? Yep, sure. To coincide with the release of Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, which is a uh, film based upon a TV series or spun off from a TV series, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, TV series that have become films or films that become TV series and uh, basically we're going to talk about films that we think are really good examples of how this works when something shifts from one medium to another. These are not necessarily the 10 greatest um, films that started out as TV series or vice versa but we think they are 10 sort of really great ones that people should uh, check out and some of them may qualify as greatest. I say that at least one of them does uh, but uh, I think it's they're, they're all very interesting I think it, the, the people should check these out so the very first uh, show we're going to pick is a, it's a TV show it's never made it into uh, the kind of, a kind of theatrical release um, form um, but it's something that started with very kind of humble origins um, as a kind of light hearted knockabout 80s dare I say it's Star Wars knockoff um, 
I'm talking Battlestar Galactica and more specifically the reimagined Battlestar Galactica which landed in the kind of noughties was that right Ed? Yeah it started in uh, 2005 uh, or 2004 with the sort of uh, three hour mm. mini series that it yeah. preceded it um, which was this kind of big event setting up all of the sort of the basic idea of the series which is that the Cylons have uh, were created by man they came back they basically killed almost everyone except for the sort of handful of people who exist on the sort of surviving uh, fleet and uh, you know and then from there kind of uh, spun outwards and became a a wildly sort of successful and critically acclaimed uh, TV series in its own right after the miniseries was a huge success um, and at one point I remember The Guardian in the UK asked the question you know is this the best show on television and you have to remember that was at a time when sort of the wire was in its sort of in its peak as well. So, but perhaps before the guard, you know, started banging the drum for the wire so sharply as it would eventually. And uh, so that's kind of the level of esteem with which it was held. And uh, what was interesting about it was, you know, as you say, it was sort of this. It started out life as this thing in the sort of the late seventies and the eighties. This obvious attempt to cash in on Star Wars with this kind of thing about men versus machines with a weird sort of Mormon mythology mixed into it and it was very sort of campy and it had a cult audience but it was this kind of weird relic of a time when everyone was obsessed with Star Wars Um, when it was uh, redone by David Icke not that one and Mm -hmm. Ronald D. Moore it was um, they kind of reinterpreted it as an examination of post 9-11 America which yeah, was, it was it's more hard edged, wasn't it, when the second time around and, and much more intelligent and thoughtful and, and it was serious but in a way that didn't kind of make it po faced. No, it wasn't kind of grim. It could be grim at certain points. There was a, a long a large kind of the first half of the third season which is all about um the humans being occupied by the Cylons, which is obviously a um, parallel for the a parable for the uh, occupation of Iraq which uh, has the humans become suicide bombers and you know treads into some sort of murky moral and political waters which was really fascinating but you know was essentially a lot of sort of watching people be incredibly miserable and then blowing themselves up um, you know so it, but it, it was it always maintained this kind of this like great ambition these like really great for TV special effects uh, this kind of overarching mythology which I think a lot of people kind of felt um, undid the show in its kind of final movement when it had to kind of bring together all this stuff about prophecy it never really bothered me that much because I kind of thought that once you introduce prophecy into a TV show you can't really be annoyed when uh, it doesn't kind of uh, fan out as you would hope Mm. you know once mysticism's in there you can't expect for everything to be like perfectly scientifically uh, sort of come together and coalesce but you know it was a just a this really kind of uh hugely impressive show this sort of great characters really uh fun you know like the dog fights in it were great you know they actually had like great action yeah i mean the original battlestar galactica series was noted for having you know uh kind of spaceships and miniatures that would blow up and stuff but famously they used the same effect shot but shot from different angle. <laughs> you know, they probably did about six or seven for the whole season, and just reuse them ad infinitum. Um, but uh, the the stuff in the the special effects and the action sequences in the reimagined show are fantastic, and they they do um, 
they do that thing that I really like because uh, I've got a bit of a kind of a, a bee in my bonnet about um, things set in space when like things explode there isn't a noise yeah because you know I mean? it's the yeah. vacuum of space and Firefly does it and uh, Battlestar Galactica both do it and you know hats off for them for being scientifically accurate and also they use non-Newtonian physics in that they don't fly like in Star Wars they don't fly like their ships in an atmosphere they fly like something that has no atmosphere so they can just stop in the air they can flip around on a dime and everything like that they so don't bank against the wind or anything like that yeah exactly so the the uh, battles have this kind of unique feel to them that you don't really see in a lot of sci-fi because a lot of it kind of hues too close to what what it would be like on Earth whereas there they actually kind of applied what this might be like if theoretically you did have these sort of amazing ships that could like actually do all these amazing manoeuvres in space Mm. Is it finished at Battlestar Galactica? So it kind of spun off in, into Caprica. Is that the same thing, or is that just a is that like a Deep Space Nine style? That was a spin-off? that was a prequel about the early days of the creation of the Cylons. That ran for a single season and then was cancelled. And then they were going to do another one, which was another prequel series called Blood and Chrome, which was going to be about the early days of um, of uh, Admiral Adama as a young man, which. Mm-hmm was commissioned and then didn't get picked up and then kind of resurfaced as webisodes it was very strange um so it's at this point it's pretty much done uh there was talk of brian singer doing a big screen adaptation of it but it would be like uh completely unrelated to the tv series but that died down because i think everyone said but why <laughs> why would you yeah. want to try to go back to making it a film after this show had devoted sort of 60 odd hours to it and by and large kind of done it right Mm. Yeah, I've I've only seen I've seen the miniseries and I've seen the the whole first season. Um, never managed to kind of pick up the second season, but I've noticed they're on Netflix now, so I might kind of revisit those. Yeah. I did like uh, there was some kind of quite weird, kind of kinky ideas in there. There was a there was a bit where I think halfway through the first season, the character of is it Gaius Baltar is that the guy yeah. in the British guy? Yeah. He's because he's kind of imagines this Cylon woman with him the whole time who isn't there. Mm-hmm. and he kind of speaking to it and there's a bit where he starts shagging her but she's not there and someone walks in on him kind of like with his trousers down kind of humping yeah. midair and I'm like what What am I watching <laughs> well, I, I, this is awesome <laughs> this is pretty good I was very impressed by that does it does it kind of uh, lag at all at any of the later seasons or is it pretty um, consistent it's fairly consistent I mean there's a bit of an awkward juncture in the third season where like the first half is this occupation stuff and then Apparently they were forced to drop that by the network and make it more kind of like, you know, adventures in space kind of thing. So they kind of drop all this interesting stuff and then they kind of struggle a little bit to kind of get back to what the show's good at. But Mm. after that, I think generally it's pretty much, it's solid pretty much all the way through. The second, the first season I think is the most overall consistent because it's the shortest because it's only 13 and then the late ones they have to go up to sort of 20 and it gets, it's, it's, it's hard to fill a whole season of television. Uh, but it's still, even when they would be, kind of have episodes that felt like they were wheel spinning, they still always had like these sort of key things, like really interesting ideas in the background, great performances, great effects, you know. So it was always interesting, even when you kind of started thinking this, you know, stuff about unions doesn't really have anything to do with uh, the Cylons, because <laughs> mm. there is a whole episode about about unionising, which doesn't really go anywhere, but is not, it's not like completely terrible the show never became terrible unless you're one of those people who hates the final season but I, I quite like the final season 
Right, there you go. That's the final word on that, people. Final <laughs> season. Ed says it's good. Um, so, yeah, moving on to uh, another uh, adaptation. We're going to go from uh, a TV show into a film now. A film that we've talked a lot about on our wrap-up of last year. A film we both very much enjoyed. Um, uh, the film 21 Jump Street, um, which is a straight comedic take on a rather ludicrous premise which was the original TV show, which was about young-looking cops going into schools to kind of solve issue-of-the-week-style crimes. Um, And it was a daft premise originally, but they did it straight in the TV series. The film, 21 Jump Street, which I'd recommend everyone see, because it's piss-funny, takes that daft premise and does it stupidly, and the results are are marvellous to watch. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, the... There's kind of a lot of strain of this sort of thing in a lot of the TV adaptations um, where if you take a series like, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies is a good one, an example of this as well, where all the Brady Bunch, where they had these sort of like slightly kitsch and campy basic premises where they just kind of like say, and then when they come to make the film versions, they do them sort of vaguely postmodern. Mm. I think that uh, for a long time, the, the Brady Bunch was kind of the best example of that. Yeah, uh, you know, because it was it was slightly subversive. Or, for example, um, uh, the uh, Josie and the Pussycats movie from two thousand and one did the same sort of thing. But I think Twenty One Jump Street is the the most purely entertaining of all of them because there is a real kind of kitchen sink approach to it. Not uh, like kitchen Mike sink Lee. drama. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's not Mike Lee's uh, Twenty One Jump Street. Uh, it's more kind of like they just throw everything at the screen and you know pretty much all of it sticks which is the really impressive thing about it mm. I'm just trying to imagine Mike Lee's 21 Jump Street is it 21 Jump Street the address of like a backstreet abortionist like <laughs> <laughs> during the Blitz or something um, but uh, yeah there's a sequel on the way to 21 Jump Street um, how do you feel about that because generally um, a sequel hurriedly commissioned and kind of put into production quite quickly reeks of someone trying to cash in and perhaps the uh, spark that kind of made the the first film you know great probably maybe not there the second time around or do you think that those guys had so much fun the first time second time around it's going to be great uh, I'd hope for the latter I think the, the the but I'm also quite cautious because the directors are off making the Lego movie and those guys I'm really big fan of the two guys who who did 21 Jump Street? They also did um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which. Hang on, you might have to rewind. They're Sorry. doing a Lego movie. Yeah, they're doing a Lego movie, which features the vocal talents of uh, Chris Pratt and Nick Offerman, uh, two men that you and I are both fans of. Um, yeah. And, yeah, uh, but I, so sorry, you want to rewind again? Lego, <laughs> a Lego movie. Yeah, it's basically like there's not a huge amount of details that have been revealed, but it's basically a film set in a Lego world where people can use blocks to build things. And the way they've talked it up, they said it's going to be this big, ambitious, like, special effects thing where you essentially have all these blocks and you can create absolutely anything with it. Mm. I think there's a hero's journey to kind of get some sort of talisman that allows you to reshape the world or something. Uh, and it sounds like a lot of fun. And as I say, those guys are... They're sort of mad geniuses of these sort of comedy. You give them anything, they'll, they'll kind of really run with the premise, as they did in um, 21 Jump Street... And I think without them, you'd need someone with the same sort of anarchic sensibility to make it work. I think you could still have a good film without their involvement, but you know, I think a lot of what was great about 21 Jump Street was it was such a pleasant surprise. 
you know, to have this really warmed over premise that no one had a huge amount of faith in to kind of come and be that funny. Whereas mm. obviously the second time round we're going to be judging it against the first one. I think it's that's that's a much tougher hurdle to overcome. Yeah, I mean, Twenty One Jump Street is is kind of one of the comedies uh, that I can think of probably since Anchorman that's got such a high hit rate of laughs. Yeah, I think that also it, coming so close together. Like you know, you and I talked about the fact we're both looking forward to. Uh, we're both looking forward to the second Anchorman film, and I think one of the reasons why that one I'm more hopeful about that one is that it's coming out so much so longer after the first one, mm. so there's more time to kind of come up with funny stuff. Whereas if you're coming out so soon after the first one, there's a risk that you know everyone's just a bit depleted and they haven't had time to kind of recharge. Yeah, yeah. But I, are um are a thingy on board for this? A Tatum and and Hill on board because Hill was the writer wasn't he on yeah, he was one the, of the writers he was the co-writer him and Michael Bacall who also uh, wrote uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World um, yeah they're both um, he's also in, uh, one of the bastards in uh, Inglorious Bastards um, yeah they're both as far as I'm aware they're both on to sort of star in it so um, you know I think if they can maintain the chemistry you know it could still be really funny but it's just a question of whether or not it'd be as kind of like surprising which is obviously a difficult thing for a sequel to truly be hmm yeah well time will tell Ed time will tell um the next uh, film on our list it's a film adaptation of a, of a TV show again um is a slightly unusual one uh, in the sense that um it was an, a kind of an adaptation of a show that was actually ongoing um, but it changed things so it kind of almost wasn't an adaptation I'll just cut to the chase and tell you what it is it's uh, In the Loop uh, the Armando Iannucci um, adaptation of the TV show The Thick of It but it was odd because it was clearly an adaptation of the show and it retained some characters but then the other characters kind of dropped out or changed their names or performed very similar roles um, and it was it was quite an odd adaptation to do that, but it was still a bona fide adaptation and nominated for the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar that year. Yeah, it's also one of the weirdest, um, in the Oscar ceremony, you know when they say adapted from the novel by or adapted from the play by? Mm. For that one, it was, in the loop, adapted from the character of Malcolm Tucker, which I found to be incredibly strange. <laughs> Yeah, because um, I mean, all the other characters who are in the thick of it, like the Chris Addison character and stuff, are in in the loop, playing the same type of character but with a different name and a different yeah, role. Yeah, so it's it's. I think uh, you know they've said that essentially they wanted to do the same sort of style and the same sort of milieu and the same sort of concerns, but on a slightly slightly broader canvas. Even mm. though they did joke that they didn't want to, you know, do what all British comedies do and like when they make the film version have them go on holiday when in fact that's exactly what they do um, they said they wanted to do that but they didn't want to kind of have people have this sort of barrier of being like oh who's this what you know what's their role in the TV series and having it they wanted to kind of create something that was a film version of the thick of it which but that wouldn't have kind of the sort of connection to the TV series other than Malcolm Tucker who's kind of this elemental character that you can just throw into any situation and mm. instantly kind of like if you just tuned into any like individual episode of the thick of it, Malcolm Tucker's kind of the character that you would immediately gravitate to. So I think that that's kind of the reason why you keep him because obviously it's hard to uh, to lose him. But 
by essentially having all the other char- people come in and play sort of new characters because obviously Chris Addison's in the film shows up as like first day on the job because he looks 12 um, mm-hmm. and you know and you just kind of go from there I think it works because it is its own unique story but you know for fans of the series uh, it's kind of it, it feels like a continuation whilst also being sort of a weird divergence like a parallel universe version of the show um, yeah and I think that's kind of the key to it because it has the same like caustic sense of humour ever so slightly turned out, turned down really for this uh, compare if you compare like the first two series of or the first yeah the first two series of the show to the film it's a lot the film is kind of a lot less biting except for its last act where it basically has Malcolm took a, a start the Iraq war more or less mm. <laughs> um, that that's a bit biting but it's uh you know it's got the same sort of sense of humor and everything but it's not uh it's not sort of uh wed to kind of the continuity so they can do sort of anything they like with the characters which i think might be a bit restricting really if you ever do a straight adaptation it's like you know except in the case of something like the simpsons movie where continuity doesn't really matter and you can just kind of get straight back into it uh, mm. they so i think that's kind of why it works yeah, and it's weird that Tom Hollander came in as a character and then reappeared as a different character back in the show later because when he he appears in a kind of a cameo, doesn't he, in um the thick of it, I think it's the end of season 3, is that right? Yes, he shows up in the very last episode as the character known as the fucker. The fucker, yeah. And then when he arrived and I saw him, I was like, oh is this is this the same character from In the Loop, but kind of battle-hardened and scarred. <laughs> that he's not an incompetent, bumbling um, kind of diplomat. He's a you know a fixer like uh, like Tucker. Um, but yeah, In the Loop did give us our our you know that dream kind of face-off of um, Malcolm Tucker versus Tony Soprano in a, uh, a quite staggeringly profane uh, <laughs> insult trade-off. Yeah, I think that was the that was the thing that sort of for fans of both those shows when you see that in the trailer. Mm. You know, it's like um, in the trailer for the Avengers, seeing like Iron Man and Thor and the Hulk <laughs> and everyone kind of like squaring off and fight, thinking, oh, they're going to have a big fight. When you see uh, James Gandolfini and uh, Peter Capaldi staring off against each other, you've got this kind of mountain of a man versus someone who just looks evil. Mm. <laughs> Peter Capaldi, wonderful actor, but he does look terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking of a kind of an alternative Avengers. We've got Malcolm Tucker, Tony Soprano. Al Swearingen. Um, Al Swearingen. Yeah. Kenny Powers. Sorry. Kenny Powers. Yeah. <laughs> Kenny Powers. fucking Powers. Um, yeah, that would be quite a Avengers Assemble. Rated R. Strong, hard R. I think it would just be them getting pissed for like an yeah. hour and a half, and then they just find out that the world's like they lost. <laughs> but they're not They're not too cut up about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, next on the list is a film of which I was not even aware of its existence until today when you picked it and it seems so intriguing and we're going to talk about it. Uh, the film is, um, I'm going to mispronounce it, but it's The Castle of Cagliostro. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's. I think it's like Cagliostro because it's meant to be Italian. But... Uh, Close enough. Yeah. It's a Japanese film um, based on, a, is it an anime of the same name? Yeah, it's based on. I think the the full title of it is Lupin the Third or Lupin Three. It's an adaptation of a long running uh, manga series and anime series in uh, in Japan called Lupin Three, which itself is inspired by the uh, Arsene Lupin uh, 
novels, which were 19th century novels. They were kind of uh, about a gentleman thief called Arsene Lupin, who is uh, kind of a, uh, he's referenced by uh, Sherlock Holmes at one point in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories. He's like this mm. great, uh, amazing, uh, but noble thief, and his kind of and the TV series and the film are about his grandson. And uh, the reason that uh, sort of Castle Cagliostro is interesting is uh, it's uh, the first feature film from Hayao Miyazaki, who obviously went on to found uh, Studio Ghibli and uh, become one of the sort of the great shining lights of of, uh, of the animation world. And uh, it's uh, it's it's just a fantastically fun sort of film. It's all about uh, Arsene Lupin kind of. It begins with him kind of staging this robbery of the way he escapes by having uh, destroyed the cars of everyone who's going to chase him by like uh, unscrewing the wheels and kind of fucking up the engines and then just driving away and he's got these big pounds this big pile of money and mm. he suddenly realizes it's counterfeit and he just throws it all away and decides that he's going to try and figure out who's behind all this counterfeit money that's essentially cost him a fortune and he goes to this uh, castle uh, and you know sees this sort of beautiful young girl who's due to marry the count who's in charge of it and there's this whole sort of big mystery built up to it and it's this uh, it's just a sort of a, a rollicking good time uh, because it's essentially sort of this high swing this incredibly charismatic and charming and slightly uh, wayward hero who's not kind of squeaky clean because uh, he's obviously a thief and he kind of, he's, he's one of those thieves who just delights in uh, messing with people like all the people who are meant to chase him like there's a cop in it who's constantly after him and there's just a there's this kind of sense of sort of glee hanging over the whole film which is really really fun mm. how does it shape up uh, and how does it fit with Miyazaki's kind of canon of work as a as a, as a debut Cause did, did he direct it fully or was it a co-direction with someone else uh, no he directed it fully he'd also worked on the TV series beforehand he directed like a handful of TV episodes before he'd uh, he got the gig uh, directing the feature film version, and uh, there's it, the pacing of it's a lot sort of more frenetic than a lot mm. of his late stuff because obviously his his films are obviously defined by a sort of quite languid pace, you know, because he's someone who's very interested in sort of like exploring the world he creates, and this one is sort of it's a caper, so he's got to run really go really really fast. So it's interesting seeing how he kind of handles that, and also its sort of moral world is a lot starker in some ways than his because one of the things that's great about Miyazaki's later films is he doesn't really have villains except for um, in like Porco Rosso where fascism is the villain but even then it's kind of a concept rather than an actual person Um, and usually he has like villains who you can kind of see their point of view They're, they're doing something that they think is right like the the character in the villain in sort of Princess Mononoke who's just trying to kind of do right by her people which uh, means that she comes into conflict with the heroes and stuff. That's kind of his moral universe: is that no one's entirely bad and no one's entirely good. Whereas in this one, the villain is an out-and-out sort of proper mustache-twirling kind of villain, uh, mm. and it's interesting seeing him kind of like tackle that. Uh, but there are kind of tropes of his sort of stuff. There's flying in it, which is obviously a big thing for him. He's, uh, he's loves it. Uh, he loves flying. Uh, so there's a, there's brief flying sequences, but the thing that's interesting about it is the last sort of like five or ten minutes of it is is the part of it that feels like the first Miyazaki film because the plot wraps up quite with sort of like ten minutes to spare, and it ends with a the villain being crushed by a clock, which is actually 
quite uh it's not you don't see anything but you hear the crunch of the clock crushing him and it's quite dark mm. um and then it, it ends with like them discovering this kind of like uh as a result of that discovering this kind of sunken city in the lake surrounding the castle and the last five minutes is just quite kind of like sad there's kind of sense of an adventure having finished and the characters just kind of like talking to each other and walking through the ruins of this ancient city which really does have kind of like the tone of his sort of stuff and you know it's got this really uh sweet and beautiful music and the, you know the characters kind of like uh ruminating on what's happening and then having to go and live their lives which is uh, another kind of recurring theme with a lot of his sort of films if you look at like spirited away and princess mononoke they're kind of films that uh are kind of characterized by that same sort of tone as well uh so it's really it's it's like for fans of his work it's i think it's pretty much, even though it's kind of quite fluffy and quite light uh it's kind of essential in some ways for kind of understanding how much of a sort of a complete filmmaker he was from very early on because obviously mm. that, that it, film's nearly 40 years old at this point and it's still and it looks great it still looks really really good um it's what obviously one i've never heard of does that mean that it's available readily on dvd and kind of home media or is it is it kind of slightly harder to track down no no it's fairly readily available on dvd because they went uh they it's not a studio ghibli film because uh he wouldn't establish studio ghibli for a few more years but when um sort of uh when spirited away kept became a big thing they started putting out a lot of his older stuff on dvd and disney have done really well by that and sort of to capitalize on that uh the cap the castle of cagliostro was uh, re-released and in America people can watch it on Hulu which is because uh, I, I re-watched it today for the purposes of this podcast and you can watch it on Hulu uh, mm. so, it, so it is out there in the world and it is relatively available and I'd really recommend people check it out sweet I will check that out now, the next um, uh, item on our list um, is a film a 1988 film um, The Untouchables uh, a film stands out in this list as something that had a long time between its its kind of source material and its um and its film adaptation the 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 tv show that it's based on was uh, in the late 50s early 60s um and told the story of Elliot Ness the kind of hugely mythologized kind of Chicago lawman and his fight against kind of the Chicago underworld um and it was adapted in 1988 as I don't know what it was it trying to cash in on any kind of gangster film success of the time yeah it was a pretty huge success i mean it was coming off off the back of um scarface a few years earlier and there was kind of a resurgence in interesting sort of like gangster culture around about that time obviously they're different, uh, right, areas. Okay. They're different areas of gangsters but i definitely think there was kind of like uh this kind of uh, renewed interest in it uh, which kind of carries on for the next couple of years because obviously a few years later you get something like you know warren Beatty's uh, dick tracy mm-hmm. uh, uh, and around about the same sort of time you get something like uh, once upon a time in america which wasn't a huge hit but obviously it was the sort of a a, a very sort of critically well-regarded and influential film in the long run. So, a uh, very pulpy origins. Um, I'm just kind of just looking through um, the... looking at the old Untouchables TV series and, and um, yeah, it kind of seems like a very much old, very old-fashioned kind of pulpy good guys, bad guys type uh, affair. But what's fascinating about it is looking through the list of guest stars uh, that they had on the show over time. I'm just going to give you a few of them now. Uh, Lee Van Cleef, Robert Redford, uh, Leonard Nimoy, Leslie Nielsen, 
Um, we got Lee Marvin, Robert Loggia, Martin Landau, George Kennedy. Um, who else have we got? Peter Falk, Robert Duval, uh, James Coburn, James Kahn, Martin Balsam. So they you know, there's some <laughs> real heavyweights who probably got their break playing kind of uh, hoods and stuff on the Untouchables. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I found interesting about the TV series. But it's, that TV series is not something that's been held in particularly high esteem with time has it no it's not like something like dragnet which kind of keeps being held up as kind of an early example or, or the naked city is kind of an example of uh procedural tv at its best i think it was sort of the sort of thing where the the essential the basic premise of the untouchables is this team brought together to take down al capone but you can't have them take down al capone too early so you kind of have to stretch out by have them taking down other people along the way i think mm. that that is the sort of thing that a lot kind of holds holds it back because you you have this kind of big idea that they take they're going to take down Al Capone eventually but at the same time the the, na- the na- nature of television certainly at that time is that you can't you have to try and make as many episodes as possible so you really have to delay the gratification of that and also the the kind of delayed gratification of knowing what really happened in real life is they took him down on the basis of dodging his taxes he he went down on a technicality rather than for any real proper crimes yeah which i think is why the film kind of works is that you can have the visceral sort of thrill of two hours of gangster action but then yeah and then obviously the slightly anticlimactic uh way in which he is actually taken down but you can still have the sort of the, the thrills of the chase without having to kind of stretch that out for years and years and years of of a chase that everyone kind of knows will never be resolved in the way that an audience would really want. Mm. So yeah, and the film is very stylish. Brian De Palma's uh, kind of one of his more accessible, enjoyable, less kind of perverse films that he made. Um, and it was a big studio hit. It introduced us to Andrew, Andy Garcia, right? quite kind of inconceivably playing an Italian, even though he's from Cuba, which is not even in the same fucking continent. Um, and yeah, also, uh, Sean Connery won a Academy Award for what I can only describe as one of the worst performances <laughs> I've ever seen on film, playing an Irishman with a Scottish accent. Um, and God, he fucking chews the scenery in most of those in most of those scenes. Yeah, it definitely feels like a career. Uh, a career Oscar, doesn't it? Then, for uh, for a specific performance. Yeah. Spoiler alert: his death scene is one of the most overwrought pieces <laughs> of cinema I think I've ever seen. What are you prepared to do? <laughs> Just like yeah. Um, yeah. He, he has that one good bit of sort of Mametian dialogue because obviously it's it's written by uh, Mamet, mm. um, which is you know they you know they send one of your guys uh, to, to the hospital, or you say you're one of their guys to the morgue. Uh, and obviously it has the not Odessa Steps sequence, uh, which is one of uh, uh, De Palma's better pieces of sort of thievery that's not Hitchcock. Uh, yeah, it's interesting about that bit. I mean, if those who don't know what we're talking about, the kind of clim- climactic shootout um, that happens in The Untouchables is this amazing sequence, which is kind of ripped off the battleship Potemkin uh Odessa step sequence but where um, there's a shootout happening but the kind of ticking clock of that is a, a pram that's rolling down the stairs that they've got to try and stop and uh, I found out um, kind of shortly after I watched The Untouchables the most recent time that 
that scene was literally thrown together at kind of a moment's notice because they had a big a big um car chase that ended the film initially and very late on into the filming it got cut out for budgetary reasons and they were kind of left with well we need a climax we need an action scene we don't know what we're going to do and Brian De Palma was kind of putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and then you know the day before it was like right we've got an idea we need a, we need a train station and we need a pram and that did it and if you if you watch that sequence just in isolation just I'd recommend just watching it that's constructed so expertly and that's you know the the skill that it took to do that and to kind of like just conjure that from nothing is just remarkable. It makes me kind of long for Brian De Palma to do something good again. Yeah, he's had a bit of a fallow run, hasn't he? Because like I mean, like I said earlier, talking about him being sort of his sort of thievery, I do really rate uh, Brian De Palma. I think he's one of the great kind of uh, stylists of that kind of new Hollywood movement. Like even sort of you look at his earlier films like Sisters and and stuff like that, and there's something really interesting about them. And then you get into like the really great stuff like Carrie and Blowout and Obsession. Uh, mm. You know, he's he had this like really interesting, very uh, perverse run of films uh, that I I just find really really fascinating. And yeah, the the like you you were saying before recording that you're not you've watched The Untouchables a lot and have kind of soured on it recently but yeah I, I loved it as a kid and I had it on VHS and I damn near wore that thing out and you know I loved it and, and then I got it on DVD years later and I watched it and I just didn't enjoy it at all yeah. I just kind of found it quite silly and I don't, I don't really know why that was I don't know whether I've kind of matured and become a bitter old soul or whether I just kind of maybe kind of rose tinted spectacles and maybe shouldn't have gone back to the well one more time yeah, I think uh, I I was never a huge fan of it uh, when I used to watch it when I was younger. But then like, I rewatched it a couple of years ago, and it was it was one of those things where you know you put a film on because you want something on in the background, and then you just mm. kind of like get drawn into it. And I think why really respond to it is like the craft, because obviously De Palma's just kind of like as you say, he's just so skilled at putting that sort of stuff together, and the film just flows so well that even though it is kind of overwrought and sort of slightly campy in some places it's just so kind of well delivered that that kind of carries it through for me so that, yeah. that's kind of the reason why I would like recommend it and why I would put it on this list so I just think it's such it, it is fun like is in sort of a campy perhaps slightly unintentional way in some ways like you know Connery's performance is only really enjoyable as camp because it's mm. not it's not great <laughs> um and, yeah. and De Niro's just kind of like you know people talk about De Niro kind of going off off the boil in the 90s but I think you can kind of see him phoning it in a lot in that one um, in a role that was originally intended for Bob Hoskins so I think you know based on the long uh, Good Friday probably could have done that a lot better uh, mm. that sort of thing better even if his American accent is uh, as you know you see in like Who Framed Roger Rabbit oh, wonky mm. <laughs> he was not a great uh, American accent but I still think yeah. he probably could have done. It could have been a bit more convincingly menacing rather than cartoonishly menacing as De Niro is, because De Niro is in that is not a million miles away from Al Pacino in Dick Tracy, you know. Except he's not got the stupid prosthetics on his face. It would have been good if Bob Hoskins would have played it exactly as his character from Long Good Friday. <laughs> so he'd be like, who's having a go at me? Uh, just, you know, constantly looking exasperated as to what's happening. 
Elliot Ness, I shit him. <laughs> I shit him. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it's worth, always worth watching The Untouchables and always worth watching just for that sequence alone with the Odessa Steps slash New York Penn, Penn Street Station, I think it is, as they shot it in. Um, next up is um, an, <laughs> another adaptation of a pulpy um, TV kind of serial, uh, but in this case a very short-lived one. We're talking about uh, The Naked Gun, uh, a uh, spin-off of Police Squad, which was itself a pretty brazen parody of those police procedural shows, and there was one in particular that I can't quite remember the name of, this is well-researched. Um, but the show only lasted for six episodes and spawned uh, a minor comedy classic in The Naked Gun, which is still bloody funny. Yeah, I mean, it's um, Zucker, Abrams Zucker, who did um, Airplane and Top Secret. Um, it's their kind of last hurrah as kind of comedy, as kind of like great uh, purveyors of um, sort of that abs- absurd sort of gag a minute comedy where they're like, you know, talking about 21 Jump Street, where there's always something going on in the frame. Uh, is the first one the one with uh, where it's the ends up at the baseball field at the end? It does, it does, yeah. Where the villain gets trod on by an assortment of marching bands. Yeah, and then a uh, steamroller at the end. Yeah. <laughs> goes over him, and then uh, uh, George Kennedy has the great line where he looks over and he's like, that's, that's no way to die. And then he says, yeah, my granddad went the same way after <laughs> after he'd been like run over by everything, then a steamroller, then a marching band. Um, ingenious. But what's your favourite joke from Naked Gun? I have to say that mine is either a toss-up between when it's just a simple sight gag with the with the um, the guy in the science lab who's incredibly tall. His name's Ed, and they mm. <laughs> you can't see his head. And he he stood there, and you can see he's eating a banana, and he pushes the banana up out of frame, and then takes it down again. And they say you got something on the side of your mouth, and he touches his face and you, you obviously can't see any of this and then they say no the other side and he does it and then like half a banana just falls down onto the <laughs> desk that's one of my favourite games the other one is when um, they're searching everyone on the way in to the the Queen's state visit and Drebin is searching this person who George Kennedy is holding and Drebin's going through Kennedy's actual pockets and saying hey he's got a gun hey he's got a picture of your wife and then oh man that's just genius that gag it's fucking brilliant the way that and the, the Kennedy in that I mean that's an Oscar winning actor um, I'm not saying that an Oscar guarantees quality as we've just shown with Sean Connery and uh, The Untouchables but um, in terms of like you know he's a serious actor and he plays the comedy in that so well um, I think my favourite is that one it's either that one or the second one where he's like he comes up for air he's in like a wetsuit and someone says what are you doing and he's just like I'm swimming in raw, raw sewage <laughs> he's just kind of like it's very it's very, it's very refreshing or something like that you want to know it's his, his safe word to the person oh, who yeah. is listening to his bug is I love it so he says I'm oh, yeah, I love raw it. sewage <laughs> I love it yeah. that's it that's just amazing, yeah. and the the set. I think my favorite in the whole of the Naked Gun series is probably again in the second one where there's the big gunfight on the roof, and there's two great bits, which is showing uh, Drebin having a or, or maybe George Kennedy kind of like popping up and shooting at someone, and then the other person popping up, and then the camera showing in a third shot that they're about two foot away from each <laughs> other, and they're just and it ends with uh, <laughs> with George Kennedy just like throwing his gun at the other guy, knocking him <laughs> unconscious. And yeah, I mean, I mean, that's that's that that's a gag that's recycled from Police Squad, but yeah. it's just it's just a testament that how many gags they had that yeah. they pretty much took all the gags from Police Squad and still managed to have them left over for a second and third film. 
But yeah, those those first two, I haven't seen the third one in a long time. I remember there was a pretty weak uh, Jurassic Park joke in it, and there's lots of stuff about the Oscars which wasn't great in the third one. But those first two, I think, stand up as uh, alongside Airplane and Top Secret as these just great pastiches that just have these this wonderful vein of sort of uh, irrepressible absurdity running through it. The next choice is uh, one that I'm particularly pleased about. Um, we're going to talk about South Park, bigger, longer, and uncut. The um, musical adaptation of uh, the TV show um, and I'm going to say this now I think it's the best musical um, definitely the best musical uh, since uh, Little Shop of Horrors in 1986 I think that uh, there was that and then um, South Park and I don't think there's been a, a better musical since either no definitely not an original musical I mean I, I you and I are both fans of Pitch Perfect but that's not an original musical really is it no, no. You got the, you get the impression that will be a stage musical quite soon. Oh, but, um, it has to be. Yeah, that's yeah. set up so well for it. Yeah, um, but no, I I think it's an astounding piece of work. Even even, and I think that's did the film. Am I right in thinking that the film actually made people take Parker and Stone seriously as musical songwriters? Yeah, until they showed up at the Oscars on acid wearing dresses. Yeah. <laughs> yep, tripping their tits off dressed as Bjork, J-Lo and someone else who I can't remember. Yeah, um, but I think, I, I can't remember, I, I want to say that uh, it was like Sondheim or someone wrote uh, uh, Trey Parker, like complimenting him on the work. And like Trey Parker and Matt Stone are both like huge musical theatre guys. Like, you know, their mm. first thing was a student film called Cannibal, the musical. Um, so they're kind of that they've got a kind of prior form when it comes to that and you can really see that in you know the pastiches in it like obviously there's the big uh, pastiche to of, of Les Miserables in it with uh, their, their version of uh, One Day More mm. where it's uh, all of the characters kind of like singing at the same time like Satan singing about uh, up there with flowers and all that <laughs> and then uh, there's a, a nice bit of self-commentary where uh, Stan and Kyle sing when did this song become a marathon because <laughs> it goes on for like four minutes um, but yeah I think the songs in that are amazing they are they are so funny and they're so well written and like the instrument the, the and but the, the story of it is so cool it's so self reflexive in a way that doesn't feel kind of arch or kind of to up itself because obviously no. the idea of it is like they're given free reign to do whatever they want and they they want to kind of and they have the characters kind of like swear but they kind of make fun of the they're sort of preempting the controversy controversy and commenting on the common controversy around them by having it be all about like uh terence and philip making a movie that then causes a war between the us and canada uh and also kind of having the v-chip thing in cartman's head which uh, kind of comments on the idea of like you know, just because you can have everyone swearing all the time, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that that's all you can do. But obviously mm. he does it, and he gets an electric shot, and eventually gets the ability to fire lightning bolts out of his hands. Yeah, and also discovers that the most offensive thing you can say is Barbara Streisand. Yeah, as we all know, uh, the the TV series was a very zeitgeisty sort of thing before the film came out. Because I remember mm. certainly over in England, like remember watching it, you know, late night on Channel Four and there on Fridays and then like Monday morning it was all anyone was talking about mm. was at school was um, like the crazy fucking shit that had been on South Park the previous week but like you know there's a difference between a sort of cult uh, hit and then like an actual film that gets 
goes into theatres and, you know, gets all of the press of, like, you know, anyone can go and watch, you know, buy a ticket and go and watch, certainly in America, you know, with the sort of the laxer um, rating system where you can kind of sneak in if you can get an adult to go in with you and stuff. Uh, and, you know, and uh, also then the, the, you know, the prestige of being Oscar nominated for a song called Blame Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and being being sung by Robin Williams, you know, it's just uh, I I do think it kind of knocked them up a whole uh, a whole of a notch in sort of terms of sort of public visibility. But yeah. also, you know, when you're make the the whole point of cartoons is you don't really see the people who make it, and then when they get Oscar nominated and they have to go out and they're being interviewed on the red carpet, you know, off their tits and mm. <laughs> wear, wearing fashionable dresses. Um, you know, obviously that gets them a lot more press as kind of individuals rather than as sort of the guys who made this stop motion Christmas card that turned into a TV series. Mm. Um, I watched uh, the other day, I'd recommend it if you haven't already done so, there's a documentary, it's a uh, Comedy Central documentary, it's on Netflix called Six Days to Air. Have you seen it? I have, yes, it's very good. Yeah, just a really kind of uh, interesting look, because for those of you who don't know, South Park is produced in seven days. An episode is, is, is they literally turn up on Monday, they don't know what they're doing, they still don't know what they're doing on Tuesday, they've got a rough idea by the end of Tuesday, then Wednesday they throw it out, and then on Wednesday afternoon they come up with an idea, then Thursday they fill out an entire episode about it, write it, record it, and then it's ready for air on, on the day it goes out. And it's an amazing little look inside the process of how this is done. And, you know, it's not like they cut a lot of corners. Um, you know, it's still a kind of very professionally produced show. Um, and even though the animation style looks rudimentary, it's, you know, pretty labour intensive. Um, and yeah, it's a great little kind of look into what they do. Uh, I'd recommend it heartily. Yeah, there's a good uh, there's a good bit in it as well where uh, Trey Parker is talking about his writing process. So I think it's one of the best examples of uh, of the rewrite where he talks about how the way he writes the first script is this happens and this happens and this happens, and then he talks about having to change it from this happens, therefore this happens, which leads to. And then just mm-hmm. kind of like the the idea of kind of like honing a narrative, which I think is one of the kind of the the simplest but sharpest ways of breaking down story structure I ever seen. Like within thirty seconds, he just kind of explains the idea of how to do a decent narrative, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, um, and that narrative was involving um, Kyle being stitched to a Japanese man's anus. <laughs> in the uh, human sentai pad episode most so, elegantly yeah. structured most elegantly yeah. structured that episode <laughs> yeah, absolutely um, the next uh, selection is uh, to kind of go against the trend of what we've been talking about is a um, TV show based on a film and uh, famously a film that was not very well received at all not the creator wasn't happy with it no one was happy with it in fact it was just a generally unhappy um, experience the film in question was uh, released in 1992 it was called Buffy the Vampire Slayer pretty much everyone forgot about it apart from one man Joss Whedon who wrote it and he went on to create a mildly popular TV version of the same concept called Buffy the Vampire Slayer with a different cast different concept-ish and uh, yeah the world went nuts for it I'll admit Ed I haven't seen a single episode uh, didn't really kind of tickle my fancy, um, but I seem to uh, to remember you like it. I do. I'm a I'm a huge fan. I'd put it in probably my top five um, TV series that I've ever seen. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, yeah, as you say, the the film version was 
more or less was a critical flop and Joss Whedon pretty much disowned it. Uh, it was a pretty terrible experience for him. You know, the script, he wrote this script and, you know, it had sort of a dark, subversive idea to it, which was essentially, you know, he'd watched all these horror films in which, in, you know, the opening scene, the sort of the blonde girl is chased and murdered. And then he says, well, what happens if the blonde girl turns around and beats the living shit out of the monster? And, you know, it was just this idea of taking on a sort of like, em em creating a sort of empowered female hero out of a very tired sort of uh, horror trope. And the film basically wasn't that. It was just kind of like uh, vampires and there's a girl in it. And then they changed his ending. The, end the original ending of his was very dark and involved like uh, Donald Sutherland's character, I believe, setting fire to a gym and like killing all the vampires and himself, which is actually the canonical sort of beginning of the TV series. So I think that's kind of indica indicative of how much he hated the film. <laughs> That mm. when he got the chance to tell the story again on television, he just basically went, "Yeah, fuck those guys for changing my ending. This is how it's going." And uh, you know, he took that same sort of idea, but he also added the extra metaphorical idea of creating a TV series which was about fighting monsters, but those monsters represented sort of aspects of adolescence and high school and growing up. Uh, sometimes clumsily, uh, sometimes inelegantly. But there was always a very sort of, it was a very sort of strong metaphorical hold that kind of held it through the, the early season, the first season, which was very choppy, uh, very choppy indeed. Uh, but then, then sort of the sort of second through to fifth seasons were just like, they really kind of kicked up a gear. They started experimenting with uh, form and style in a lot of ways. You know, they did famously did a musical episode in the sixth season, but even before then, they did things like uh, an episode called Hush, which is... Uh, about half an hour of it is silent there's no sound in it because these characters show up which steal everyone's voices so there's lots of very funny gags about silent cinema in it and there's this uh, beautiful use of music there's an episode called uh, the zeppo which is uh, one of the best written episodes of television i've ever i've ever uh, seen where essentially they take the basic story of a Buffy episode, which is there's the A story where everyone's off doing the fighting, and the B story, which is about one of the supporting characters, and they flip it and make the B story the A story. So in the background, there's this like life or death battle going on, and then the actual story is sort of the character of Xander going off and having sort of a uh, a sort of a wild and crazy night sort of thing, which is really cool, interesting and uh, innovative approach to story structure. And it was just, and you know, it was always underpinned by this kind of whip smart, really funny, self aware, uh, highly uh, literate and intelligent dialogue. Um, my favourite uh, one liner in the whole show is sort of indicative of the sort of the, in the, the level they're aiming for, where in one episode they're waiting around for someone and Buffy says, uh, This girl makes Godot look punctual, which I think <laughs> is, a, which is a line that's always tickled me. Um, obviously, not before I knew who Samuel Beckett was. Once I knew who yeah. Samuel Beckett was, that line tickled me. Um, and I just think it's a, a, it's just such an amazing sort of accomplishment, which even though it kind of uh, had a, a rough beginning and it's arguably rougher end, because the last two seasons are very, very... Uh, they're not terrible, but they are very scattershot. Um, you know, I think that it, it the sh he created something really kind of uh, special and interesting in that sort of the, those middle seasons. And you know, when you compare it to the shitty film that kind of originated it all, it is really impressive to see 
how different it was when sort of Whedon was given the chance to really explore the world that he created. Um, from a production standpoint, surely that's a tough sell for Whedon to go to a network and say, well, you know, this film that I made that no one liked, that, you know, was an absolute bomb, that, you know, went down like a wet shit. I'd like you to invest in making a big-ish budget TV show of this. And someone said yes to that. Well, I think it was very helpful that he went to one of the smaller networks, uh, to Fox, who at the time were, they had kind of the Simpsons and they didn't really have a huge amount else. So they were willing to kind of take a chance on it. Is this post-Firefly? this is pre-Firefly. This was pre-Firefly. when this was when he was he he was fresh off an Oscar nomination for co-writing Toy Story. So he he had kind of an Oscar nomination under his belt, and he had this reputation for being someone who was like a, one of the top script doctors in Hollywood. So he obviously had a, a bit of cachet, uh, mm. and he was going to a network which kind of was willing to take a risk, although it was a very sort of qualified risk, where they said we want you to make a pilot as proof of concept before you actually make a real pilot. So they had, they filmed like a 20-minute test pilot with uh, Stephen Tobolowski as the principal. He never... He uh, uh, he sort of didn't continue with the show when it actually made its proper pilot. So they made That's a pretty, shame. Yeah, because he's a, he's a terrific uh, actor. Although that meant he wouldn't be uh, eaten by cannibal uh, students in the third episode. So he missed out. He, he at least didn't have to do that. Mm. Um, and uh, so they made the proof of concept episode... Uh, they got picked up for a pilot but it was like it was a mid-season replacement thing so they basically said we'll give you 13 episodes and we'll see how it goes and then something crashed and burned and they were brought in and did just well enough to kind of justify a second season so it was like it was a show that even from the early beginnings was everyone was very wary of like they Mm. did everything they could to basically dissuade the network from picking it up by being really cautious about it so I think it's just a testament to the, the quality of the vision, really, and sort of Whedon's sort of passion for it. And obviously the fact that it kind of it had such a an easily kind of... Uh, such a high-concept name, obviously. Like Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the show kind of like summed up on a very basic level in four words. Yeah. Uh, which obviously helps in kind of be, get becoming sort of a zeitgeisty show, as it would. And then obviously it had more layers uh, in, in terms of style and theme and character but you know it helps when you can just kind of sum up a show in so little words cool um penultimate choice here um is a american film adaptation of a british tv show quite un- unusually um we're going to talk about um steven soderbergh's uh, big screen adaptation of traffic which was a british miniseries um in the 90s i think it was uh, about the um, drug trade uh, principally running between um, the UK and uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan kind of area, the kind of heroin trail. Um, and in the kind of, was it 2000, I think it was? Yeah, 2000 uh, was when the, the remake was released. Yeah, Soderbergh, who at that point was going through a career renaissance. Um, having kind of struggled his way through critically acclaimed films, but you know ones that no one saw and no one cared about, um, he kind of directed Out of Sight in I think ninety seven, ninety eight, and that kind of um, helped him get the kind of some money off studios and kind of gave him some freedom of, of making some kind of quite interesting films. And and one of the best films of that little streak was Traffic, which 
located the uh, relocated the action from Britain and Afghanistan to uh, America and Mexico, and um, is a really kind of thought-provoking, very intelligent, sprawling kind of film about the uh, both the the drug trade and the U.S.'s futile uh, war on drugs. Um, it's not perfect, but um, as an adaptation, it does something very interesting with it. Um, I kind of wasn't apprehensive about it. I thought it would, you know, in those hands, it was a very exciting choice of adaptation. Um, and yeah, it really is kind of one of the strongest films of that kind of early 2000 period, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, it won uh, Best Picture that year. Um, which was a, a, is still quite surprising, really, because it's such an unconventional film. It's uh, mm. it's obviously got a worthy theme, you know, uh, which is the war on drugs. But it's shot in such an unconventional way. Soderbergh is someone who's uh, obviously is a very sort of technically minded filmmaker. He likes experimenting with thought form, and there he does, you know, he uses different color palettes to represent each different element area of the story. So he's got like a light blue kind of tint for all the stuff about the all the political stuff with. Uh, with uh, Michael Douglas as this kind of a drug czar who's trying to get to grip with a way of sort of tackling the drug ec- epidemic in, in the US and not really getting anywhere but then it's like when he does the sort of on the ground stuff in, in Mexico it's really uh, sort of shaky handheld, really bright uh, yellow uh, and really harsh and he does these really interesting things and then he, he manages and that's a, like an easy signifier that allows him to juggle like this, this huge sort of cast of characters in a, in a way that, you know, given the sort of the sprawl of the film and the fact that it's not kind of got a conventional narrative in any way, uh, mm. he manages to make it very accessible, which I think is is the one of the sort of the great triumphs of that film. Yeah, and it works pretty much across the board, with the exception of maybe the Catherine Zeta-Jones character, and maybe not just even the character, because I'm not really a huge fan of her acting um but like just the the that that kind of scenario with the uh, Dennis Quaid as the kind of hitman on the side it just doesn't mm. ring particularly true against the other stuff considering you know Michael Douglas is in that film and one of his scenes is him famously in a room full of real senators and um kind of just kind of dropping in on conversations in character talking to them about the dr- the war on drugs and you know that's the other stuff with Catherine Zeta-Jones calling in a hit and you know nipping across the border herself to smuggle drugs across it just doesn't quite ring as true. Yeah, and the the only the only other part of it that to me kind of also doesn't ring entirely true is uh, the Michael Douglas's daughter like smoking a joint and then seeming the next day being like in a crack den. Um, That's what happens though. It's a gate. It's a gateway drug. <laughs> it's a gateway drug, but it's it's, it's obviously very compressed. Uh, mm in a way that you have to do because it's you know it's the nature of a film is that you've only got a couple of hours in which to kind of compress all this stuff and especially in a film that's so busy but you know it does kind of come off as a little brief of madnessy um, yeah i mean in the tv series it, it it's much it takes much longer yeah and you can see you can imagine something that's got more time to kind of uh take the basic ideas of that and kind of parcel them out and maybe flesh out the characters a bit more Whereas in mm. the film she just becomes a cipher for kind of like the idea of sort of drugs, you know, taking uh, sort of, uh, you know, sort of middle class white people who are like not traditionally seen as the people most affected by drugs. 
even though obviously a lot of them do do drugs you know it's it's kind of trying to put a face on it that maybe the audience would respond more positively to than the typical uh, sort of minority thing because i think that that's a kind of a problem with the the american sort of media's approach to the drugs is that they only seem to really focus on it when it's kind of like nice white kids who are the the victims of it Mm. Um, the, the nice thing about traffic is it does try and show as many kind of sides of the issue as possible yeah um when we just before we went on air with this we talked about about is the kind of interesting companion piece of of the wire um being a kind of multifaceted multi-layered um kind of multi-perspective uh talk about um the war on drugs do you think that the structure of the wire um kind of shows where you can investigate that with more depth over a film like yeah. traffic which has to try and squeeze it in for two hours yeah because as you say like obviously the characters are compressed so so their arcs are so broadly drawn in a film like if it was a single character piece you could see the characters being drawn kind of more fully in a film you know mm. if it was about one of those strands but if you have sort of four or five different strands going on at the same time obviously the characters are going to be broader and they're going to be uh, the, the arcs are going to be more compressed whereas in a, a TV series you get the and particularly in The Wire you get the opportunity to have multiple strands going at the same time and going at a pace that allows for the characters to gradually be kind of like filled out so you can see for example in the fourth season you know there is the, the story of the of the young boys uh, one of whom sort of descends into drug addiction very slowly very gradually and you can kind of see it happening uh, at a pace that feels more sort of natural and less kind of like uh, alarmist than the one mm. in Traffic, which because Traffic obviously covers a lot of the same sort of stories as the Y does, but it does has to do so at a far faster pace, which can, yeah. which is not conducive to nuance in uh, in all situations. Um, our final choice um, is an enigmatic one um, because what it is is not quite clear. The um, film we're going to talk about is uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me and the reason I talk about it being enigmatic more so than I would normally because it is a David Lynch film and his films do tend to be slightly puzzling um, is that I'm not entirely sure what Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me is. It's got elements of a prequel, it's got elements of a sequel. Um, what is it, Ed? Uh, Fire Walk With Me was the spin-off film that was uh, produced in 1992 after the TV series Twin Peaks had kind of spectacularly sort of burnt out after you know the first season, which was lauded as one of the great achievements of television, rightly so, and the second season was not uh, because um, <laughs> because David Lynch left to film Wild at Heart, so his kind of like it was a, the show became a little bit riverless. Uh, they had more episodes rather than the eight that the first episode, the first season had. They had 22, uh, and mm-hmm. it's hard to sustain a mystery over that time. They also made the the terrible error of revealing who killed Laura Palmer in the first, in like the eighth or ninth episode, which basically meant that no one had any interest in watching the show anymore because that was kind of the big mystery. Uh, and then it kind of rallied in the last uh, last sort of episodes when uh, the uh, the sort of villain of the piece, you know, a former agent, uh, former friend of uh, Karl McLaughlin's character showed up and started fucking with everyone, uh, which was great. Uh, but, you know, it, by then the damage had been done and it was like shedding viewers at an alarming rate and it got cancelled. So David Lynch 
came back uh, for the end of the series and then also did this spin-off which fills in some of the stuff about um, what happened to uh, Laura Palmer in the last sort of days of her life uh, in more explicit detail than in the TV series both uh, in terms of the uh, the the content because there's a lot more uh, sex and drug use in it which you can't get away with on a uh, a primetime TV show but also it uh, divulges a lot more weirdness uh, mm. uh, even than the TV show which was obviously known for being very strange uh, to the extent that the first half of the film uh, is about Chris Isaac the uh, singer of a Wicked Game playing a, another FBI agent who's investigating the disappearance of Carl McLaughlin's character I believe, it has been a while since mm -hmm. I've seen it uh, and then he's like searching, he finds a trailer, there's a, thrash, a flash of white light and then he disappears and you never see him again. And the second half of the film is about Karma Glocklin's kind of like a case before Twin Peaks at the same time you're kind of seeing the, the Laura Palmer uh, death kind of playing out in tandem. And uh, it's very strange, David Bowie shows up for, in a brief cameo <laughs> appearance. Yeah, um, of course he does. Uh, obviously. Uh, and it's very interesting in terms of Lynch's 90s works. It's the first of his films in that period to kind of use the structure that he would kind of become known for, which is like the bifurcated uh, structure where the first half of the film is one story and the second half is another, which you see him do in Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive. And it's just a really fascinating horror film, really, which is what it essentially is. It's kind of a descent into, a, a you know, this... Uh, uh, this uh, drug-filled horror for Laura Palmer, but also of this kind of really eerie terror of suburbia, which is obviously a, a recurrent theme of, of Lynch's work, but which he kind of goes to town with in uh, Firewalk With Me, because obviously he's already established the world in a TV show, so he just feels the he has the opportunity to go completely nuts with it. Mm. And it's it's kind of enigmatic in another way that I was just kind of reading about it beforehand that you know it was it's a two hour film but isn't it cold from five hours a five hour cut that David Lynch had um, and there's been an ongoing kind of dispute for the footage ever since a kind of a push me pull you affair with the I think it's a, a German company or a French company that owns the rights to it yeah, and I think it's the, the five hour cut is, is still to see the light of day or the extra material is is kind of will fill in even more blanks and but then probably pose more questions than it will answer. Um, uh, do you know what the status of that is? Uh, there was talk a couple of years ago of them doing like a special edition release, which wouldn't kind of be the full cut, but it would like have all of the extra stuff alongside of it. But that was like rumored, and then nothing came of it. So I could only assume that the rights issues just kind of scuppered it again. Yeah, uh, which is a shame really because I think there is I mean I really like the film as it stands because it's just you know it's so strange and it's so interesting as this kind of bizarre addendum to the TV series um, but you know I think it would be really cool to see what other stuff he had planned you know because so, obviously that's uh, two and a half times longer than the film we got so it's just a, interesting to see where, what else he would have fleshed out given the opportunity 
Hmm. I think it's probably time I revisited Twin Peaks again because I've I've not watched it since I kind of borrowed my friend's video collection. So I had wow. it. It was on. I think it was on uh, fifteen or sixteen video tapes. Uh, all the episodes spread across, and um, I'm slightly softer on those episodes after the the murder is or the murderer is revealed um, because I found it to be one of the most curious soap operas of all time <laughs> after they do reveal that it's just an odd, odd show um, kind of just the kind of the small town concerns of these very odd citizens and then when David Lynch himself turns up in that second season I fucking love that yeah, um, he, but yeah he, I, I love Gordon Cole as a character just kind of showing up shouting and just being like hello, cope <laughs> yeah, lovely a, voice he a, does a a without any explanation deaf <laughs> FBI agent who turns up and just kind of shouts at the top of his voice. Um, but yeah, I got the DVD box out a couple of years ago, and I haven't haven't revisited that yet, and I probably should. I would recommend it. Like you know, the bit after the death is, I I I find it a little bit of a slog to get through because I know that the, like the last six or seven episodes are so strong. And you know that all that soap opera stuff with Bobby and the white woman he's sleeping with doesn't really amount to much of anything, but it's still it, yeah. Even then, there was such a weird weirdness to it. And you know, one of those episodes is directed by Diane Keaton. Uh, yeah. One of, the, one of the few things she's directed. So I just kind of find that that little things like that really fascinating as well. It's just like she's hardly directed anything. What really drew her to direct the second season episode of Twin Peaks? <laughs> Yeah, and a kind of pretty anonymous one at that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was kind of... When Twin Peaks was on first time round, you won't remember this, uh, Ed, you'd have been too young, but when it was on the first time round, there was an awful lot of hype about it. Like, mm. Even as a... I think I may have been 12, maybe even maybe even 11, when it kind of landed on BBC Two. And um, everyone was talking about it. It was, it was very much a kind of... Uh, have you seen Twin Peaks something? And you know, as an 11 or 12 year old boy, I'm not really going to understand it. But I decided to tune in, and I watched it, and I was absolutely captivated by um, what was happening, and um, kind of just didn't really get it at all. But I thought it was amazing. And then um, years later, when I did rewatch them on my friend's borrowed video cassette uh, collection, um, I realised the point at which I tuned in to Twin Peaks was five episodes from the end. Oh right. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I tuned in to this show uh, with the first episode was the death of um, Ted Raimi's character mm. who just kind of drops in but they find him dead in a giant chess pawn. Yeah. That's the first thing I saw. Killed with a crossbow. And then ending, the series ends the way it does. And I just didn't know what was happening. This was pre-internet so like I couldn't just look it up. I just thought, oh, it's just not on anymore. <laughs> I wonder what that was all about. <laughs> and it wasn't until years later that I kind of thought, Oh right, okay. Now I know what I've seen, but I still don't understand it. Um, but yeah, a great show. And um, yeah, I've never actually seen Firewall with me. I shall um, definitely kind of uh, try and check that out soon. Maybe I can do it. Would you recommend watching it before or after watching the series? Uh, because of the weird structure of it, I don't think it really matters when you watch it, <laughs> because it's both a prequel and a sequel to the to the show. Uh, I think you can watch it before or after in it. But I suppose. Uh, it's probably better watch it afterwards because then you'll be refreshed from the, watching the show and knowing the events beforehand. Mm, okay, I will do that. So that was our top ten. That was our first ever uh, top ten episode um, created purely to cut the time that we spend on episodes and we've actually made this one longer than most <laughs> other episodes. Um, but a mighty fine list, I'm sure you'll agree, Ed. 
Yes, definitely. The, I would recommend all of the films we've talked about uh, this episode to anyone. Yeah, cool. Well, um, we'll be back with a regular episode next time. Um, and until we do return, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.